welcome back to the International Society of Nephrology Global Clinic Care Podcast. I'm your host, Roberto Pequafilho. I'm a nephrologist and the chair of the ISN Education Working Group. In our program today, the ISN joins the celebrations of the 25th anniversary of the DOPS program. Let's talk about the history of the studies that since 1996 improved the experience of patients with kidney disease by identifying links between international variations in clinical practice and outcomes. I have the pleasure to have with me three of the DOPS lead investigators, distinguished research scientists, Dr. Fritz Port, Ron Pisani, and the program scientific director, Dr. Bruce Robinson. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank Great you. Great to be here, Roberto. Thank yeah, thank you so much. Well, yeah, I, I was uh, I was looking at some numbers, impressive numbers of the DOPS, and uh, it's quite impressive to see that over the, the last 25 years, uh, the program has uh, tracked 120,000 patients on hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis, and with chronic kidney disease, and has been present in 20 countries. Fritz, you, you were there from the very beginning. Can you tell us about the motivating questions and the, the drivers of the initiative back in 1996? Right. Um, I'm very happy to be part of, of this, uh, this uh, story. It actually starts a bit earlier. It's, uh, 30 years ago, uh, we had just um, the first year of the USRDS, and um, Philip Held and myself and our team uh, com uh, computed registry data, the USRDS, and also registry data from Japan and Europe, and uh, looked at the mortality based on those registry data. And we, we were surprised how large the difference was. The US had substantially higher mortality for ES ESKD patients than Europe, and by far the lowest was in Japan. Now, we found this was true for virtually all age groups and for diabetics and non-diabetics. And it was totally unclear as to why there were these large differences in outcomes. Uh, so the motivating factor here was the question, could we learn from differences in practice patterns? And uh, we had already done USRDS special studies 25 years ago. Uh, that gave insights into U.S. dialysis facility practices, but but and we learned from the differences within the U.S. But there was a need for us to learn from the international differences in treatment treatments and outcomes. Now, fortunately, Amgen and its partner in Japan, Kirin, were interested in pursuing questions of longevity for dialysis patients. Which, by the way, was the mean was the main market for their drug, EPO, erythropoietin. So that's a pretty logical business uh, conclusion. Um, so collaboratively with Amgen, we developed the DOPS using the random sample of dialysis facilities uh, in the U.S. and a year later in Japan, and um, in order to get yeah, we couldn't get volunteer dialysis units to do data collection. And so we had to pay for the data collection as part of the budget. So we chose a limited 
number of patients of 20 to 40 patients per dialysis facility and a limited number of facilities. Philip Held, Bob Wolf, and myself led the study design and, and the implementation with the help of our, of our team and several expert committees. So the data that we uh, abstracted were, of course, comorbidities, medications and labs, and dialysis parameters, as well as dialysis facility information, including a medical director questionnaire about the, the practice and patient questionnaires, quite importantly, regarding symptoms and quality of life. Now, two or three years later, when Amgen was ready to fund additional European countries, five, five countries, the five largest countries, we, we've realized there was an unexpected problem. Our university insisted that the budget uh, for, uh, for the study should, should use the usual indirect cost rate, um, even though a large number of the funds would be just passed through to Europe. Well, this necessitated the creation of an independent nonprofit organization for the DOPS uh, that was outside the university, uh, and we called ourselves URIA. And the problem is like, like this term, of course. Yeah, interesting. Uh, uh, the, the term actually meant University Renal Research and Education Association. Now, uh, when, I, when I a few years later became president, we changed the name to Arbor Research Collaborative for Health. That's our current name because we felt that collaborative was a very important feature, collaborative with other countries, collaborative within our organization. And uh, so we went to, to, to Europe. Now around Europe on, on, so on those trips to the five European capitals, what do you, what do you remember from, from those trip, on those trips? Oh, they, they were fantastic, uh, uh, Fritz, yeah. Um, and so enjoyable. Within each country, we we met with a you know leading nephrologist within each of the countries to uh, have um, a, a, you know at least a half a day meeting to discuss um, what the DOPS project was all about and and what their interests would be uh, you know and the interest really within the country and and the feasibility for for DOPS to really be possible in those countries and. Um, uh, and the discussions were just fantastic, and 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 I remember Fritz, for instance, uh, at the meeting in Heidelberg, um, where uh, you know in each country we discussed the random sampling approach, and and um, and I can recall those discussions in many of those countries where you know many of the um, uh, nephrologists in the country said, oh, it'd be no problem to, and and the, the goal was to get twenty. Uh, facilities within each country, we felt that we could represent the practice within the country, and they they said no problem at all. Right? We uh, we have lots of friends who hear that we can easily uh, come up with twenty facilities. And 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 Fritz, what was your response uh, uh, to that? Right? <laughs> it was totally totally strange to them yeah. to not get their friends and former trainees in in the study. We needed a random sample. He said. But if you get only your your friends and, and trainees as uh, as uh, as uh, dialysis units, then we only get the best. 
And that was, of course, a nice compliment for them. We want the good and the bad. Uh, and a random sample is, is totally new to them. Uh, and uh, that's the secret, actually, for us to be representative of, the, of each of the countries. I'm sorry, this was a, totally innovative, wasn't it, uh, at, at the time? Right. And still is quite unique, really remarkable um, um, plan that you all came up with uh, back in the day that was, that's been just so important uh, over the years as well. Yes, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bruce, um, you joined a little bit later, was, uh, but um, um, over the last few years have been leading, you know, some important changes in the, in the program. You know, another innovative thing is the funding approach, right? Can, can you describe how the program, program funding evolved over the, over the years? Right. Well, you know, you know, indeed, this is our 25th year uh, the, of the DOPS, and, and really the first half of it, we were funded by two entities. Uh, the first was Amgen for, for the broader uh, international study. And then the Japanese study funded by uh, Kyo Akiran, um, also the producer of, of, of uh, Erythropoetin uh, in, in Japan. Um, and they were our sole sponsors for, for, for the first half of the study. And really, or no, around 2009 or so is when we really branched out our funding sources. And we realized for to sustain the study longer term, we needed a broader funding uh, base. And it was at that time that, that we, um, leadership of the, of the study, went out and spoke with an, a number, a large number of different uh, industry um, companies that were interested in the dialysis space and really sat down and listened to them, listened to their needs. And in so doing, sort of learned yet more about how we provided a unique resource. Um, and 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 so since then we've we've had a much much broader funding base, whereas the in the range of twenty or so corporate sponsors that that fund the DOPS either fund uh, us centrally or fund unique uh, country level activities. Uh, and actually, over this time in recent years, we've also asked uh, specific countries that are part of the study to develop funding for their for their country uh, level activities quite specifically. And then lastly. We've also, uh, in, in the, over the last decade or so, done more and more to bring in ancillary um, uh, funded projects with public funding, so competitive public funding uh, as well. So, yeah, We had a very interesting early finding with EPO, uh, and that is that patients who were on, uh, who were on EPO had a lower hemoglobin than patients not on EPO. And, of course, you know why because patients who were not on EPO didn't need it. And the ones with low hemoglobin, they're the ones that got it. Uh, but um, uh, importantly, our approach was the facility level approach. That means the dialysis unit. Dialysis units that gave more EPO had a higher hemoglobin very clearly. So when you look at the practice, you get the right answer. If you look at the individual patient, you're confounded by the indication for, for using the EPO. And so our approach of looking at dialysis units uh, is, uh, give, gives us the right answer because we're looking at the practice. Right, and, and perhaps in the same line, uh, DOPS has been really very successful in identifying crucial challenges in the clinical care of patients with kidney disease, like you know this one you mentioned, the treatment of anemia, but also has, has helped to drive changes in policies and clinical practice uh, globally. I think a good example um, is around vascular access to dialysis. 
Fritz, can, can you describe how this, um, some of these discoveries were developed? Right. Uh, the, the difference in vascular access between US, Europe, and Japan was very clear. And in, in, in the US, there was more use of, uh, of uh, vascular access as a synthetic graft instead of just a connection of a na native artery and vein, the AV fistula. And the AV fistulas had a clearly better outcome. And uh, so this was a, a finding that other countries can do it, the, the AV fistula, why can't we? And uh, we were actually invited by HICFA, Healthcare Financing Administration, which is a, uh, subsequently called CMS. We were invited by CMS to show our data about the outcomes with the AV fistula versus the grafts and versus catheters. And that led to, uh, to, to for the government or HICFA to recognize that there was an opportunity to improve patient care. And this was then the, the first fistula first uh, approach that became very successful in, 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 the, in the US. So we had some interactions with the government because of our findings. Right, and um, I think Ron, uh, you led the, you know, one of the papers that described these results, and it's one of the most cited papers in the area of dialysis. What else did you find it in there? Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, you know, a real pleasure to work on that paper, and yeah, you know, one of the I, things at that time is when you would talk to nephrologists at meetings and you know at poster sessions and so on. They always felt that our patients in the U.S. had greater comorbidity and so on, and so it wasn't really feasible to um, create a fistula um, in patients here in the U.S. So I, one of the key aspects of, of the paper then that, that we uh, developed and published was we looked at different patient subgroups. And so we, we looked at younger patients, yeah, you know, less than 55 years of age, no diabetes, no coronary artery disease, and, 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 you know, males and, and looked in males and then we looked in females. And even in those populations where you'd expect it for it to be really quite easy to make a fistula, uh, uh, our, our levels uh, were much, much lower than Europe. So in Europe, it, it was 85 to 90% uh, um, creation of a fistula in those patients. And, and, and uh, in the United States it was still 35 to 45%, even in the best patients possible. And so we, by looking and showing this in different subpopulations, and even in diabetics in, in Europe, they uh, still were very successful at creating a functioning fistula in 75 to 80% of the patients. Uh, and so it became very clear that, you know, our practice just, um, yeah, even in, in, in these patients uh, who it would be very feasible to create a, a, a good AV fistula, it, it was just, um, uh, inferior really. And, um, and I, I think that was, uh, really helped to make that point. Right. Yeah. Another area that I, I, I think there is an interesting story, um, uh, about, you know, how, how DOPS approach, uh, different practices in, in the area of phosph hyperphosphatemia. I think Fritz, you, you have a, an interesting story, uh, uh, from a right. conversation with your German, German colleagues, right? Yeah. I mean, 
the benefits did not only was not only for the U.S. but also for other countries. Uh, on phosphorus, we had already shown that uh, high phosphorus was associated with higher mortality, and particularly cardiovascular mortality. And uh, I was invited to give a talk in, in Germany and uh, on, on DOPS. When I when I looked at the data for for, for phosphorus in Germany, uh, I realized their phosphorus levels were higher than the than the U.S. But when I saw that there were two dialysis units, two of the twenty dialysis units in Germany, uh, they had a mean phosphorus above seven, and I said, "No, no, no, that cannot be. That cannot be. I cannot present that. We need to do some more research there." And so we looked at the use of phosphate binders, and we found that the same two units didn't give any phosphate binders to any of their patients. Now that's unheard of. The majority of patients in the US uh, and, and elsewhere are getting phosphate binders. So I had a good reason to present that, those data. And uh, that was quite a shock to the Germans to realize that there are some real deficiencies in, in the care of the hyperphosphatemia. Right, yeah. Another interesting story, uh, maybe Bruce, you can, you can just... Um... Tell tell us about it. Is is the whole thing about you know blood blood flow rates in dialysis units around the world and how you know practice uh, differences uh, help to shape up you know the concept of dialysis adequacy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so interesting. First of all, uh, because as Fritz noted uh, from the very start of DOPS, we've been well aware that the Japanese dialysis patients. Uh, live, live much longer than elsewhere, but that doesn't mean that that they're doing everything right uh, over there. And so, one of our goals has been uh, across countries to try to identify ways that one one may improve. And this is a really good example of this. Uh, actually, Fritz back in the '90s was involved with uh, groups that helped design uh, sort of informed dosing for the HEMO trial uh, with a lower KGRV cut point of 1.2 a single pool. And uh, of course, HEMO showed no additional, uh, uh, primary analysis showed no, no additional advantage to, to, to uh, get greater solute removal, but, but the small solute. But, um, and, and then at this time, of course, the uh, guidance coalesced around the idea of maintaining single pool K2V of at least 1.2. Well, what we found uh, in Japan was that the high proportion of, of uh, patients had K2V under that cut point in the range, I think, of 30% or so back in the day. And the reason for that became apparent very quickly, and that is that blood flow rates were really low in the range of 150 mils per minute. Uh, and of course, as, as the audience will know, uh, your blood flow rate in, in US is much higher than this, in the range of 400 plus, um, and in Europe, 300, 350. Uh, but it's so interesting because the Japanese are very... Uh, sensitive to the idea of avoiding hemodynamic instability on dialysis. And part of that approach is, is quite low blood flow rates. Of course, these are all three V fistula, uh, uh, almost all. Um, but what, what we did, what we realized was that uh, KTRV less than 1.2 could be fixed by a very simple solution. That, and that was uh, keeping a minimum blood flow rate of 200 mils per minute. And, and in discussion with 
uh, with colleagues and, and leadership in Japan, uh, you know, we reviewed these data and you know, at one point in the range of, let's say, 10, 10 to 12 years ago, the guidelines were updated in Japan to, uh, to recommend a minimum blood flow rate of at least 200. And actually, subsequent to that, we now see very few patients, well over 90% of Japanese patients with, with uh, HIV-V above 1.2, and that quite likely has helped outcomes. And just to note as well, you know, we launched our study in China uh, several years ago, and we've just been looking at, at uh, and actually just at a public publication looking, for example, at blood flow rate. And we see a similar story there uh, as had been going on in Japan um, in the early 2000s. And that is that there is still a high proportion of patients with blood flow rate under 200. And so uh, this will be so interesting to see now that that's become quite apparent, uh, whether or not there'll be a movement to sort of, you know, to, to assure a minimum blood flow rate of 200 plus uh, in China as well. Well, you're listening to the Global Kidney Care Podcast. I'm Roberto Pecoafilio, and today we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of DOPS with Fritz Bork, Ron Pizzoni, and Bruce Robinson. Well, talking about innovation, I think another point that I, I think we need to bring to the discussion here is the whole issue of uh, capturing patient-reported outcomes. And um, we live in a, in a world today of uh, really a patient-centric medicine. And I think um, DOPS has been doing that for a while, capturing the patient perspective of um, treatments. And um, Ron, you, this is one of your favorite subjects. How, how did you see you know, the patient reported uh, outcomes uh, capture being created or being introduced in the program and how it evolved uh, to the, the way we do it today. Yeah, thanks so much, Roberto. Yeah, indeed, I, I feel that patient quality of life is, is, is one of the most important outcomes. And it's been a part of DOPS right from the very um, beginning. And um, Donna Mapes, who uh, really uh, let, uh, was the leader of, of the team from Amgen, um, this was a very important area to her as well. And Donna, I don't know if, if folks realize this, but she was one of the um, co-authors of that really pioneering work by uh, Ron Hayes, um, in, in which in, in the mid nineties, uh, they described uh, the kidney disease quality of life instrument, the KDQL 36. And, uh, and so Donna was part of that effort and so when we started DOPS, we, we've always included uh, an important aspect is, uh, has been to collect quality of life data um, and using the KDQL, plus other uh, instruments, validated instruments to look at other aspects of, of quality of life as well. And, and in fact, Adana led, I think, what is to me is one of the, um, the key quality of life papers um, that's been published in um, uh, in dialysis patients in, in using and uh, looking at uh, our DOPS phase one data, uh, the relationship between the summary scores from the KDQL, the, the physical component and mental component summary scores, PCS, MCS, they, their uh, relationship with mortality and hospitalization was very, very strong. And, and in fact, uh, um, 
as strong or even stronger than serum albumin, which we know is one of, one of the strongest laboratory markers that are related to mortality is a nutritional marker and so inflammatory marker as well. And, and so the, the PCS and MCS scores were uh, just, uh, you know, just a strong indication of how important quality of life is for, and, and this is for mortality and hospitalizations, but it, you know, it just impacts a patient's um, well-being and, and, and daily life. And, and so um, it's just an indication of the importance of quality of life. And so we've looked at many other dimensions since then uh, uh, throughout the years and it's, it's been a central focus of our, our working tops. Right, yeah. So let's talk about some, some of the current um, projects and opportunities. Um, Bruce, what do you think are the, you know, the things that, will, that the, the DOPS uh, pro program offers in terms of, you know, um, current questions and um, current trends that you would highlight to, to our listeners? Yeah, right. Uh, well, it's so interesting. You know, we've done some work of late, uh, uh, not only characterize the, characterizing greater survival, longer survival in dialysis patients, which is really impressive over these last 20 years, but on top of that, recognizing we have a ton more work to do. And uh, with this in mind, a couple a couple um, trends actually specific to in-center dialysis that we found. First of all, the rise in the use of, of uh, hemodiafiltration has been really remarkable over the last 10 years. And the variation internationally, right? Because HDF is not used at all uh, in the US uh, to speak of. But in Europe, it's risen uh, up to almost 50% uh, in DOPS countries. And uh, in Japan, actually, most recent data show us it's really shot up now, now even to 60% of patients. Uh, and this is you know, really through the availability in recent years of online uh, replacement fluid allowing for um, high volume HDF. So really remarkable. Um, and again, zero use in the US. And, and uh, this is a wonderful chance for us uh, to again, you know, identify this natural experiment, right? Practices have, have, have adopted a practice, uh, changed their practice wholesale. We have some practices that don't use it at all. And it's a perfect opportunity to really analyze effect on, on outcomes. A lot of excitement about HDF, but I think a, a ton of un, uh, unknown still, right? Ultimately, the series of trials to date, they're perhaps inconclusive. There will be important trial data coming out in several years, which is criti critically important. Uh, and until then, we're, you know, we're, we're really interested in, in helping add to that body of literature. One other thing we noted just recently is that, um, and it, you know, I think there's been a, uh, 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 folks should be commended uh, related to going back to the phosphorus story because phosphorus levels de have declined substantially over, over the last 20 years in all regions of DOPS, really remarkable. Except that we noted just in the last couple of years, actually phosphorus has started to rise quite dramatically in the US, uh, in the US in particular. And this is a story that I don't think has gotten out there yet. So um, I think another example of the utility of our data, you know, what ultimately is the impact of this? Um, some people say, well, this is maybe a good thing, maybe a good thing if it does reflect liberalization of diet. Um, however, there's a lot of unanswered questions there and we really need to pursue that. So those are a couple of examples specific to hemodialysis. 
Yeah, definitely great examples. And, and also um, interesting to see that DOPS has expanded to other areas of chronic kidney disease recently. And um, over the last few years, there has been the introduction and implementation of, the, of CKDOPS, which is a study on uh, non-dialysis patients, which is really unique in terms of capturing that late stage of kidney disease and the transition to dialysis. And also the peritoneal dialysis study that is, provides really robust uh, a robust platform, observational platform to several of the questions uh, now in the area of uh, peritoneal dialysis. Also, I, I think something very interesting to watch is the expansion in terms of geographies and the fact that uh, DOPS has been present in more and more countries, including some countries that has not, they have not participated in DOPS in the earlier phases like low and middle income countries like Brazil and Thailand, for instance, Brazil participating in CKDOPS and Thailand in PDOPS, which I think is really interesting from an international society nephrologist perspective that has a focus on you know, global nephrology that DOPS has been a partner of the ISN, um, first producing educational material that is delivered to the ISN platform but also more and more involved and interested about partnerships in terms of research. One good example of that is the uh, ISN DOPS COVID survey that, uh, that we developed together. And, um, and that survey looked at the impact of, of the COVID pandemic on hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis practices around the world, including in low resource settings, which also, you know, sort of um, um, goes in the direction of the uh, you know, low and middle income country um, generation of data and, and support of uh, understanding better clinical practice. So watch out for results of the survey and other ISN DOPS initiatives uh, coming up soon. So now, now to, you know, to wrap up, let's, let's move to the future. <laughs> so uh, Bruce, Bruce what, what is in DOPS horizon from, from your perspective? Yeah, thanks, Roberto. Well, first of all, I, I, I would just, just say we're so thrilled to work with groups, uh, societies like the ISN. This is really important and so central to our mission. Uh, so very, very pleased to do so. And also just to reiterate, our interest and enthusiasm in working with new countries, particularly those uh, in, in the lower middle income uh, 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 categories, uh, I should mention in addition to Thailand and Brazil, the countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council or GCC countries uh, have been just tremendous partners, uh, incredible group of investigators working with us in the GCC. And, and, and together we've identified some important areas uh, for improvement in practice that uh, this has just been so exciting to us. So moving forward, you know, we really are, are keen uh, to continue to serve uh, as a resource to the community. Um, and Robert, as you note, uh, our work now expands well beyond the in-center dialysis unit. Um, really, the focus is now uh, broadly on advanced CKD from the non-dialysis space um, and covering that transition to dialysis through so much, or to kidney failure, um, that dialytic uh, uh, or, or otherwise, um, there's so much more for us to learn and we really want to focus on that transition period. And then of course, focus on dialysis, whether it be uh, hemodialysis or, or PD. 
Um, we are so enthusiastic about continuing to identify important trends, uh, some of which we've talked about now, and some of which we, as yet to, uh, are, are as yet unaware of um, moving forward, and identify those trends that really are linked to better and or worse outcomes, and really letting the community know about these. I think we can also serve as a watchdog, as it were, for, for the community, because we really have such unique data. We are really, I think, well positioned uh, in service of, of, uh, of patients um, with advanced uh, kidney disease and kidney failure. I would note, um, you know, this is such an exciting time uh, in the kidney disease space, finally, you know, for us to begin to start to make a, a, a more mean, you know, yet more meaningful differences. Um, First of all, with new therapeutics, um, you know, the HIF-PH inhibitors are one, but in particular, you know, can we really do, do, do more to prevent progression to kidney failure with cardiorenal protective meds, the SGT2 inhibitors, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, uh, you know, folks know those stories, but the uptake of those therapies will be of such interest and, and really seeing the effect on, on, on patients. I would note as well, with important policy changes that are going on, particularly in the States. This is a really exciting time, you know, to finally uh, make a difference. And, you, you know, we look at um, data, um, uh, for example, showing that among patients with on kidney replacement therapy, the U.S. has about 65% of patients receiving in-center hemodialysis. But other countries uh, uh, that we work with, uh, other European, you know, complex European countries uh, um, are in the range of 40, 45%, uh, the UK, Spain, uh, even France. So this really suggests that I really think that we can make a big difference uh, moving us from 65% in center to, you know, 50 or perhaps 40% uh, in the short term. And this will be great, great for patients. I would note just lastly, um, you know, once again, we're, we are so uh, enthusiastic about um, collaborating with others. It really does take a, take a village. And, you know, we here can only do so much and, and we're much, much stronger with collaboration as Fritz noted, uh, 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 um, collaborative is, is in our, uh, is in, is in the, in, in our company name. So we really do encourage folks to reach out to us with ideas for use of our data, collection of ancillary study data, uh, launch of new countries, et cetera. So much more to look forward to. Thanks, Bruce. Ron, what's your vision to the future of um, talks? <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, it was, it's just been stated so well by Bruce, um, uh, you know, all those different aspects and, you know, our, our mission still stays the same as it has been the last 25 years. And, and actually it was Fritz who, um, I, it's just four words, but I think it states it so well is, is to help patients to live longer and live better and, um, uh, continue in that direction. And along the lines that Bruce just describes, you know, so well, and, um, uh, and, and it is an exciting time. It's, it seems in the last few years, there've been more um, new drugs that are being made um, that have been developed for patients uh, in uh, who have kidney disease, uh, whether it's advanced kidney um, disease or on dialysis. And so that's exciting. Um, it's, I, I'm really excited as well for patients, for instance, who have been bothered by the um, the symptom of paritis, where it's, it's really, um, you know, uh, a really severe itching and so on that 
there have continued to be over the last several years, um, great progress in that area, just from a patient-centered perspective and so on. But I, I, um, I, uh, I think though that Bruce has outlined uh, the vision that he is, and again, to take um, this, our expertise too that we've developed over the years in trying to really carry out studies where we try to minimize bias in analyses and provide um, what we hope are meaningful results for the community to help um, inform practice, uh, the best practices for the best outcomes for patients. And I, um, and you know, that still continues to be our mission. Yeah, so thank you. Well, Fritz, we, we, we started with your memories uh, of the past and I wanted to now uh, hear your vision of the future. Okay. <clears throat> um, first, I'd like to give a bit more credit to, uh, to Roberto. Uh, who is a member of our DOPS team at Arbor Research. I would also give credit to Philip Held, who started the, the DOPS um, at, at the very beginning, and we were part of it, of course. Um, and uh, in terms of the future, I think the, Bruce mentioned an, an angle that has not been addressed well, is the transition from CKD to dialysis and the one angle is the palliative care or conservative care. Um, conservative care is oftentimes just a delay of starting dialysis, delay, 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 and um, some patients die in that process uh, without making really the decision to never go on dialysis. Uh, this transition is a difficult area to study, and um, we are now get, getting into that. It's a new area, it's an important area. So that we, there's, there's guaranteed growth for the Dobbs and Dobbs family of PD and uh, CKD. And the transition CKD to dialysis is, uh, I think, the most exciting new area. Uh, difficult, but exciting. Well, that was, that was really terrific. And to me, such a privilege to be with you today. And with that, we come to the end of today's episode of the ISN's Global Kidney Care Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. Fritz, Ron, Bruce, thank you so much and happy 25th anniversary. And thank you, listeners, for being with us today. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roberto. Thank you.